This morning we're continuing our series, week two of Strangers in a Strange Land. And this is a series of how we can live with grace and truth in a culture of compromise. It's a series about a collision of kingdoms. And, uh, and I think those are realities that we even feel on a day like today on Remembrance Day. Uh, that we're very much entrenched in this world, that we're affected uh, by the choices uh, that individuals and, and nations make. And we honor those who laid, laid their lives down uh, for their countries. And for me, I honor family members uh, that uh, fought in both world wars. Uh, yet, I know that my allegiance is not ultimately to a flag or a nation or a person, but to the Prince of Peace, to the living God. And that's what the series is about, that we are citizens of a, the kingdom of God living in earthly kingdoms. And if you were with us last week, you'll know this is a series based on the VeggieTales movies. Uh, Just kidding. Uh, Based on the book of Daniel, which the VeggieTales movies was based, many of them were based on, so you'll be familiar with some of these stories. Uh, And the context of the book of Daniel, it's it's a historical book, but it's it's actually in the prophetic section of Scripture. Uh, And and the reason that it's there is because not only is it a history book, but it's it, within that history is, is prophecy. Within that history is, is a foreshadowing of uh, what you and I have experienced and what people have experienced throughout history. And so we have the context of the Jewish people being exiled and being under uh, the oppression of the, the Babylonians. So the Babylonians came and took over, uh, took over Israel, specifically southern Israel, uh, Judah, and this, this posture of being in exile is one that would continue. In fact, throughout uh, your scriptures, there's only about a 200-year period where the people of Israel actually experienced peace. Most of the time in our biblical story, they were in exile. They were under oppression. And so uh, in the context of Daniel, we have them in oppression under the, the Babylonians. Uh, but we also see in scripture that uh, Israel was under the, the oppression of the Assyrians and then later... Uh, after Babylon was Persia, and then we have the Greeks, and then uh, you're familiar with the time of Jesus where, he, where the Israelites grew up under the oppression of the Romans. Babylon is modern-day Iraq, and just to give you a bit of a geographical con, uh, context there. And there's always been different responses to how followers of Jesus should follow uh, Jesus in culture. In fact, as we head into the Christmas season, we're, we're reminded that as people were waiting for the Messiah to come, they had all sorts of expectations of what that Messiah would do and how the Messiah would respond to the culture at that time, the oppression of Rome. Uh, and so there was different types of groups that said, let's respond to culture and to Rome this way. You know, you had uh, the Herodians that said, uh, we're just going to align ourselves with the cultural power. I mean, it's futile to fight against Rome. So we might as well just become Romans. And so there was a group of Jews uh, that kind of identified themselves as Herodians, uh, followers of Herod. They kind of wanted to come in alignment with culture. Uh, But then there was kind of the opposite of that. There was the zealots that said, you know, we serve the living God. And if God is on our side, who can be against us? Let's fight back against Rome. Let's fight back with the sword. And so there were zealots, uh, and they tried to uh, pick fights with the Romans and conquer the Rome, Rome through force. You also had the Essenes, and the Essenes uh, were Israelites that said, you know, it's, you know, just being involved in this culture is, is, is tainting us. You know, we're supposed to be a separate people. And so let's remove ourselves from culture, and let's go hide in the desert. And so the Essenes were, 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 were these group of uh, desert inhabitants that were trying to get away from uh, the culture of Rome. And then you also had the Pharisees who, who also believed that they were to be a separate people, but that was not necessarily geographically being centered, but in terms of uh, how we live to be holy, to be separate in how one, one lived. But the problem with the Pharisees is that, that their holiness was based on everything that they were against in culture. And so they had hundreds and hundreds of rules of ways that they weren't going to participate in the way that the Romans participated, and they isolated themselves from people uh, and were unable to actually break into culture or reach the very culture that God was calling them to reach. And so people throughout history, even at the time of Jesus, with how do we, how do we engage in culture? 
When Jesus came, he didn't match any of the expectations that any four of those groups had. He didn't give in to the polarization that often happens. We talked about the polarization last week, that often between grace and truth, uh, many of us polarize on one side or the other, but Jesus found a third way. He found a way to be an influencer of culture, but also to be separate from culture. And here's the truth, is that we'll either set culture or we'll reflect culture. Well, set culture will reflect culture. Another way of thinking about this is we're going to be a thermostat or a thermometer. And, and I believe that Jesus is calling us to be more like a thermostat. We are, we are actually called to create culture. And the word culture itself has roots in, in the word cult, which is around the idea of worship, that in our worship we create culture. Jesus says that we're to let Men see our good works, and when they see our good works, they'll glorify the Father in heaven. We're called to be salt in this world, which is, uh, which is basically a way of call, saying you're, you're called to make this world better. You're called to make this world taste better. We're, we're called to be light. We're not only called to make the world better, we're called to make the world brighter. Is the world a brighter place because we're in it? So we're either going to set culture or we're going to reflect culture. Jesus alluded to this tension in his prayer in John 17 when he prayed for us. Everybody put up your hand. You, you are us. The, the, he, Jesus was praying for us, and he still prays for us. Isn't that? Put up your hand. That's it. Everybody say, Jesus prays for me. And Jesus prayed for you in John 17, and this is what we see here. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. He's praying to the Father. But that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So get this tension. Jesus is not of the world. He, he is separate then. But Jesus, in the incarnation, became flesh, became material. Mary Lee read John chapter 1. The word became flesh. When she read that in the, in the worship set. That, yes, Jesus was other than. Jesus was God, but Jesus came to participate in the world to be a world changer. And so Jesus prays not that God would take us or remove us from culture, not that he would remove us from Babylon, but that God would protect us while we live in it, but we would be in it and separate from it all at the same time, that we would live in that tension. And when it talks about the world here, I think it's worth noting, it's not talking about the material world. Sometimes uh, followers of Jesus Sometimes think that God has something against the physical world. That's not what it's saying. It's saying against the systems and the principalities of this world. That our allegiance is not to a nation, but to God, to the kingdom of God. So this morning I want to expose what I think is the single greatest culprit of an ungodly culture, one that we're kind of, um, we're, we're using Babylon as a metaphor to talk about ungodly culture. It's what drives every ungodliness, every sin. The geographical location, like I mentioned, of Babylon is Iraq, but Babylon is not a locality, it's a mentality. And throughout Scripture, you'll see Babylon referred to not as a place, but as a mentality. And it's a mentality that we can see from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end of Scripture. In fact, in the last series, Did God Really Say That?, we looked at the lie that Satan brought at the very beginning in the creation story to Adam and Eve, to make them turn away from God and pursue their own path. And here's the lie that Satan brought in a nutshell. I'm all about you, and God is all about himself. That's the lie that Satan and the serpent brings, <clears throat> through the serpent brings in, in the Genesis story. I'm all about you. I got your best interest in mind. Did God really say that? You remember we went through this four consecutive Sundays, so I won't go into it again. But did God really say that? God's not for you. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. But I do. I am about you. I'm for you. God is not. God wants to ruin your fun. God has all these rules. Just kind of move away from him because, because I'll bring you true freedom. I'll bring you true life. I'm for you. This is the lie that we see in the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end of Scripture. It comes in different versions. A few chapters later, we see the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. 
And it reads this, then they said, and so this is the world kind of working together. They had one language. They're working together. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. I'm all about you. And then it says, that's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused. Can everybody say confused? The Lord confused the language of the whole world. The word Babel literally means confusion. And this is the word that we get the name Babylon from. This lie that, you know, I'm all about you that Satan brings. God's against you. We're going to talk about this in a second. Elevates you and de-elevates God. And the result of Babel, the result of the Babylon mentality is confusion. So we see that in the beginning of Scripture, the, uh, the, the garden story. We see that in the story of Babylon. We see that at the end of Scripture in the book of Revelation, the last book in your, in your Bible. We see Babylon show up here. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. Babylon. What about the middle of the Bible? Let's look in the middle of the Bible. Isaiah. Isaiah is speaking against Babylon here. He's talking to the city of Babylon. He says, Now then, listen, you lover of pleasure, longing in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is no one besides me. Mm, 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 mm. You have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am, and there's no one besides me. We live in a selfie generation, do we not? I am, and there's no one besides me. I remember when selfies first started. I don't know when that was a long time ago. I thought, what a ridiculous concept. People just taking pictures of themselves and posting it on the internet. It seems so outrageous to me. This last week I was on the mountain bike trail just like, posting shots of myself. I am, and there's no one besides me. We we, we live in a culture that is infatuated with self. This This is the Babylon motto. I am. Everybody say, I am. And there is no one besides me. This is, this is Babylonian culture at its finest. It's not just the story of Scripture. This is our story. You know, when, when my kids were learning how to speak, you know, the first words that came out of their mouth, Toronto Raptors. But after they learned how to say Toronto Raptors, they said, Mine. For those who don't know who the Toronto Raptors are, they're a basketball team. I know I'm, I'm living in the wrong country here. Uh, the first words that come out of their mouth, my, mine, like Babylonian culture indoctrinates right away. I am and there's no one besides me. This is what the Babylonian mentality does. It elevates you. It elevates self. You're the center of the world. What you think, what you feel, that's the most important thing. Your entire world evolves around yourself. In fact, your entire online experience, I don't know if you guys have recognized this. It, it freaks me out. I, got, I go on online, and, uh, you know, I was, you know, a year ago, I was talking about uh, getting a, a speaker uh, for our house. I wanted a new Bluetooth speaker, and I, I'm going online, and I'm on uh, and I'm seeing, like, pop-up ads for Bluetooth speakers all over my phone. It's like, how did they know? It's like they're listening. You, 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 you search something, and then your entire online experience is tailor-made to start narrowing in on what you think, what you like, what you're interested in. Has, has anybody noticed this? Put up your hand. Have you, have you noticed this? Okay. Are our world evolves around you. And, and, and this is what people refer to as the echo tra- chamber. The way you think, the things that you're interested in. You know, we, we think that because we live in the world of the internet that, you know, we're way more broadly educated than any other uh, generation in history. Nuh-uh. Because 
Everything in your online world is reinforcing the things you already like and the things you already think. It evolves around you. Elevate self. I bought five Bluetooth speakers. <laughs> they knew. I'm kidding, I didn't. Someone said, why? I, I didn't. Self-adoring. I talk about the selfie generation. But selfies, Insta stories, boomerang videos. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get boomerang videos. I, I don't understand them. Um, we, our high school kids are away at a retreat this week, and otherwise I would ask them, what's the deal with boomerang stories? But uh, maybe I'll find out at some point. But it's all about the adoration of self, self-indulging. This, this just-do-it motto. Indulge yourself and you will, tr- you will find true freedom. Freedom is defined by having no limitations, by doing whatever you want. That's the definition of freedom in the Babylonian culture. Let me ask you, how is that working for you? When you pursued freedom to have anything you want, how is your debt working for you? How is your addictions working for you? When, when we start pursuing everything we want in self-indulgence, we, we realize very quickly that we are, in fact, not free. The Babylonian culture promises you freedom, but it results in slavery. And it lowers God. So it elevates yourself and it lowers God. And, and, and these are the types of thoughts that start to form in the mind of someone who's been enculturated in Babylon. is that God doesn't love me. God isn't for me, and God wants too much from me. God doesn't love me, God's not for me, and God wants too much from me. This is the Babylon mentality. And one of the pillar stories in the book of Daniel that we kind of see this lived out is in Daniel chapter 4. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king, the king, is reflecting. And, and so it's an interesting chapter because it's written after the fact, and it's written from the standpoint of Nebuchadnezzar looking back on his story kind of from the end point. And he begins, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous, king of Babylon. And then he goes on to, to recount the story of a dream. I guess we could call it a nightmare that he had. And he has this nightmare. It scares him. And he, he tells it to his magicians and hoping they could interpret it, but they couldn't. And he brings Daniel in because he knew that Daniel could. And in, in this dream, there was a tree in the middle of Babylon. It was high. It was enormous. Its leaves were beautiful and abundant, and there was animals that were gathering underneath it. And a messenger came from heaven in the dream and called out to cut down and trim the branches and cut down the tree to its stump. And then it says, the messenger said, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal. And so this dream was, was warning Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar didn't, didn't realize that because Daniel came and told him, this is the meaning of the dream. You, O king, are that tree. This huge tree that reaches to the sky that, that is affecting everybody around it. But unless you change, we'll see here, You'll be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Unless you change. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar's upcoming insanity. Remember, Babylon, Babel means what? Confusion, right? And so we, hear, we see here the reality of King Nebuchadnezzar, who sees himself as this big tree, the center of the world, And Daniel, God warns King Nebuchadnezzar through a dream interpreted by Daniel, and Daniel says, you are that tree. If you do not change course, you'll be driven away from people, you will live with wild animals, you will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven, you will become insane. You will start to embody the confusion of Babylon.
And then we see how the story unfolds. Well, here's, here's the end of the warning. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of men. That's what's going to happen. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. So this, is, well, this was the warning that Daniel brought. And, and I want to pause here at this, at this point because I think it's, it's fascinating, and you'll see this theme throughout Scripture, that God always commands to leave a stump. He warns you. He warns me. And he says, if you pursue this Babylon mentality, you, you will lose everything. You will enter into chaos. But God commands the leaving of a stump. And what that means is, some of you come into this place this morning with chaos in your life. You feel like you might be going insane. Nothing is happening the way that you think it ought to happen. What good could come of this? And here is the redemptive promise throughout Scripture that God always commands the leaving of a stump. Nebuchadnezzar, if you, if you repent, if you return, if, if you come back to God, what is, it, what is, what is the word it says? It, roots, it says that your kingdom will be what? Restored. Restoration is available for every person in this room. No matter what's going on in your life, God has left a stump in your life. God has left something that he can grow back what he intended to grow in your life. If what? If you acknowledge that heaven rules. The anti-Babylon mentality. We need to flip the mentality of Babylon. So, but Nebuchadnezzar didn't listen. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Remember, I am and there is none besides me. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. Sorry, this is post. Sorry, I jumped ahead there. So the slide before, that was Nebuchadnezzar's statement, and then he went into seven years of insanity, of confusion. And at the end of that time, at the end of that seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I promised the Most High, I honored and glorified, sorry, I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. At the same time, my sanity was what? My sanity was restored. The confusion and insanity of Babylon is restored when he praised God most high. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. King Nebuchadnezzar had to flip the Babylon mentality. I'm going to invite my friend Graham back up on stage. You saw him earlier in the announcement slot um, and so I'm going to invite him back up, Graham Lauber. Oh, there he is. You guys can welcome Graham back up. Great. Just got to, I'm just going to post this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hashtag rockin' the poppy, hashtag handsome. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. <laughs> Glad you got chairs because I'm exhausted. Yeah, you've been. Uh, it's been a long morning for you already. Yeah. Um, and so, I invited Graham up here. Uh, Graham and I've been getting to know each other over the last uh, couple of years, which has been awesome. And uh, and he's going to talk a 
a little bit about his story, and and then we're, and then I think it kind of encapsulates uh, what I'm talking about here when, when we're talking about the the Babylon mentality. What what does it mean for us in our culture in our time to actually choose to live with an allegiance to a different kingdom? Uh, but in order to kind of get there, uh, we need to go back. And so, Graham, would you tell us a little bit about your your story? Uh, and uh, and then after you share some of your testimony, I'll, I'll have a few questions for you. Sure. So, really, I think, you know, the pertinent details, we, we need to go back about eight years. And uh, so, eight years ago, I'm, I'm married. I've got uh, three children. Uh, life is good, uh, apparently, but um, I'm struggling. And I'm struggling in secret. Uh, I've got these feelings that don't really fit with being married or having children uh, in our culture it, and, and don't really fit with being the good Christian that I was presenting to the world. I was, uh, you know, on the board at my church and I was teaching and I was doing all of these things, but um, I was also struggling with my sexuality. And uh, I had realized when I was very young, when I was about 13 years old, that I had uh, feelings and attractions for other men. And I had always simply believed that those weren't things that God had for us. But eight years ago, uh, I'm attending this church, and this church suddenly comes to me and says, actually, we think that God does bless uh, same-sex relationships, and God does bless homosexual activity, and we want to start taking our church body in that direction. And this threw me into massive crisis. I didn't, I didn't know what to do with this information because as far as I was concerned, the church and I always had had a deal. And the deal was that we all believed that this is what the Bible said about homosexuality. And I was going to live my life based on this. And now the church was changing the deal on me. And I didn't know what to do. And, and so I was like, I, I thought this was true and actually, I sort of bet my life on the fact that this was true. I made some pretty significant commitments based on this. I decided to get married. I decided to have children. I thought we were in this together, and now we're not. And so then, as you know, my pastors and leaders are coming to me and saying, we think this is who you are. We think that this is a very essential part of how God has made you. I'm starting to think, well, is this? Is this actually... My identity, is my sexuality really essential to who I am? Do I really need to live it out in, a, in some sort of way in order to be a happy, healthy, sort of fully actualized human being? And so I began to wrestle with that, and I actually began to build up for myself an identity as a gay man uh, and to think of myself in these terms of, of being a gay man. But I'm still married and I still have children. So this is, this is tricky to sort of figure out. And so I'm, I, I start to actually split in two. And uh, there's this, this one side of me that's struggling with my sexual identity, trying to figure out what it means for me, trying to embrace this identity of being a, a gay man, thinking about myself in those terms. This is who I am. This is essential to me. This is my core. And on the other hand, thinking, okay, so... I've still got these commitments. I mean, I've, I've still got this wife, and I've got these children, and I've got, you know, this community of people who don't really know what's going on uh, amongst the leadership at the church. And so how do I wrestle through this? And I really began to split in two. And this past week, um, you know, as I was falling asleep one night, um, it was almost like God brought back some of those emotions that I was feeling at that time as I was splitting in two. And... I mean, they were horrific. They were terrible. I mean, it was incredibly painful. And so I managed that with addiction, um, with addiction to pornography and alcohol and drugs, um, and, uh, and tried to hold myself together by using these things that would dull the pain. Uh, and so I realized that I couldn't continue down this path. It's, it simply was too painful. And so what I ended up doing was I came to uh, find out about this ministry that is now called Journey Canada, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But what Journey did for me um, was provide me, it's a ministry, a discipleship ministry that provides um, a safe place for people to start talking about their stuff. And so Journey provided me with a safe place to say, 
this is what I'm wrestling with. I don't, I don't know what to do with these feelings. I don't know what to do with these addictions. I don't know what to do with any of this stuff. And at Journey, there were a bunch of people who went, yeah, we get it. We understand. And, and we love you. And we're with you. And now, let's see what Jesus has to say about it. And Jesus rescued me. And um, there, was, there was one night in particular um, where I had this secret deal with God. And uh, it was a weird deal. Uh, and the deal was, uh, I will do what you've asked me to do in terms of conducting myself uh, with regard to my sexuality uh, as long as you leave Susan with me. And you saw that little person that was up here with me earlier. So that's, that's who that is. Uh, but if Susan is ever to leave me, or if you ever take Susan away from me, I'm going to do my own thing. And this was a weird deal because Susan wasn't about to leave me. She wasn't sick or anything like that. Um, but it was just a way of me saying, I'm going to do my own thing in this eventuality. This is one area of my life you can't have, Jesus. Uh, I'm God of this little area. And it's actually wrapped up in this whole concept of identity, of thinking of myself as a gay man. And Jesus said to me, I want the deal. You can't, you can't have the deal. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I need that. I don't know who I am without that. I don't understand anything about my life unless I'm understanding myself in light of my sexuality. And Jesus said, give it to me. And, you know, I've got five or six other guys with me, and they're praying with me. And so I, was, I found myself able to say yes, really say yes. And that yes was one of maybe the most painful thing I've ever had to do. It was like I was having the heart ripped right out of me. And then Jesus came. And all of that empty space that was left by that gay identity started to be filled up by him. And so nothing's ever been the same since. Um, you know, my relationship with Jesus is very different than it was six years ago when I had that experience. And uh, my relationship with him gives me the life that he died to give me. And uh, so, I, I don't know. I think that's my story. Thank you, Graham, for sharing your story, allowing us to share in your story. Um, you know, there's lots of, lots of pieces there that I think just really relate to this idea of uh, Babylon and culture. Um, and, and so when I think back to when you're at the beginning of what you were sharing, uh, you talked about how, uh, you know, cult culture is saying that this is, this is who you are. Uh, and then you, you had a church community around you that said, this is who you are. Uh, elevate self. Elevate what you're feeling. Elevate what you're thinking. You know, everything you, um, that your heart is desiring, uh, just let it go because, the, because that's what you need to do uh, to find freedom. But yet... Uh, you chose uh, not to do that. Um, so a couple of questions in light of that. Um, can you talk to us about the, when, when we look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar and he chose to elevate self and that kind of led into confusion and insanity and you, you kind of alluded uh, to how you, you were trying to cope uh, by other means. Can you talk a little bit about the confusion you felt uh, in that battle between elevating self and trying to give it over to Jesus yeah, and I, I mean, I made some reference to that as I was talking. You know, the, as much as I began to identify myself as fundamentally defined by my sexuality, that was the level to which I was miserable, right? If, if uh, I really thought of myself as, as this is who I am, this is what I need, this is, this is essential to my makeup, then it was like, well, then that must mean that I need this and this and this. And really, what is this and this and this? Really, it's a relationship with a man and uh, a romantic relationship with a man. And I can't have that because I'm married and so on. And so I'm miserable. And then not only am I kind of wrestling with this, but also I'm starting to see Susan and the kids as a prison. Right? Because what's the last thing that stands between me and being the fully self-actualized person that Babylon and the, well, Babylon, 
is saying I should be. The last barrier to me really being authentic is my wife and family. And so they're, they're a prison, they're a barrier. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm wrestling with this because I'm raised Christian. I know the right answers. I know all of what should be happening. And yet, you know, there's, there's these two parts pulling against one another or fighting against one another, however you want to say it. And, and that is just like a little trip to hell. So, that, so then you choose to not necessarily elevate self, but to elevate God and to align your life around the identity of being a Jesus follower. So once you identify as being a Jesus follower, uh, then it fixed everything, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't have any problems with this anymore. You know, this isn't, uh, this isn't something I have to pick up my cross daily and follow Jesus with. This is something that's resolved. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think that there's this, there's this sense sometimes, and I think it's particularly true of evangelicals, where we think, oh, I'm, I've died with Christ. I, I identify as a child of God, and therefore, hallelujah, all of my struggles are over and there's no, there's no hard work left. And yet, actually, the process of following Jesus is not just hard work, it's mind-bendingly difficult. Because I love the stuff that comes from Babylon. I really love it. Like, I love pornography and alcohol. Like, maybe that's too honest. But that's, I mean, that's, and I know that they can become idols in my life that I could easily start to worship in Babylon again. And so I make a commitment six years ago that says, no more of that. I'm committed to you. I belong to you. All of that stuff is false Babylon thinking. But I have to do that every day. There are, there are little ways that I can offer little pinches of incense to the idol of my sexuality or to the idol of Babylon thinking. And I have to be vigilant about that every day. So when Jesus says, for those who try to save your life, you'll lose it, and those who lose my life, lose your life for my sake, you'll, you'll find it. What, what, what do those words mean to you? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I was reflecting on some of what, of what you were just saying and some of what we were singing earlier, and, you know, God is on our side. God is on our side. He wants to give us the abundant life that he died to give us, but more so, God is on God's side, and he wants to unite us, not with ourselves, not with the people of God as much as he wants to unite us with the people of God. He wants to unite us with Jesus Christ. That's his goal. That's his plan for history. And so every day I have to die to the things that I want that are in conflict with that vision that he has for the universe, which is to reconcile all things into Jesus Christ. Amen. So, you know, we might be sitting here listening to Graham and thinking, wow, that's a powerful testimony. Thanks for sharing that, Graham. I'm, I'm so glad that I got to hear Graham this morning. Uh, I'm sh- but I'm glad that that's not my story. So, uh, but yet, every person in this room has some kind of Babylonian tension. And it, it might not be your story, uh, but it might be something else. And uh, whatever, it, whatever the temptation is for you to elevate self above all else, uh, and so, Graham, speaking to us, right, the, who also live in Babylon, uh, and, uh, you know, I, you know, someone who has opposite sex attraction, that doesn't mean that I'm out of the woods. Uh, I, I, I have my own Babylon that I got I to gotta worry about, right? So, what does it mean, uh, what, what, what advice would you give for us uh, in terms of what does it mean, how do, how do we follow Jesus uh, in a culture that wants to elevate whatever... Uh, it is that's in our hearts and says, just indulge that, just pursue that, just elevate yourself, and that's where you're going to find true freedom. Uh, what advice would you give for us on how to not live in Babylon but continue to live in allegiance uh, as a follower of Jesus? Right. So, I mean, I think, I, th- I think that there's a bunch of things that I could say here. Um, number one, recognize that it's not going to be easy. Like, this is... This is um, like an athletic competition or something like that. Like we're going, I mean, Paul reaches for this analogy all the time where he says, 
you know, run in such a way that you win the crown. And so what does that mean? That means doing things that I don't want to do in order to be fit enough that I can win the crown, right? And so if I want to win the Stanley Cup, if I've got what it takes, I'm, you know, I'm the kind of hockey player that it takes, I still have to get up really What's early. What's the Stanley Cup? Right, yeah. Whatever, I, what, do they, what do they win in basketball, like a chocolate bar or something? The Larry O'Brien... <laughs> Larry O'Brien trophy, come on. All right, so I want the Larry O'Brien trophy, and I have yeah, to... Okay, yeah, I, yeah I'm yeah. following you. Yeah, okay, okay, we're good. Yeah. We've got Matt back on board. Okay. So, you know, I've got to get up early. I, you know, I, I probably, you know, maybe I've also got a desire. I've got a desire to win the Stanley Bryant Cup. <laughs> Some, that's something like that. Uh, to win the cup, to wear the ring. But I've also got this desire to lay on the couch and eat chips and watch, you know, Project Runway. And... Uh, Maybe, maybe not both in the same person, but okay. <laughs> this is my world, okay? So, but I can't, I can't do both, actually. Like, if I'm going to win the cup and wear the ring, I have to do the work. And actually, as I do the work, I become a bigger person. I develop some skills. I learn about teamwork. I learn about hard work. I actually become a better person. God leads me into something bigger than myself. Um, and so, it's... The hard work is not pointless. It's not like God is up, up in heaven sort of going, okay, here's the standard and you better meet it. It's, I want, you, I want to invite you into the abundant life. And by the way, the abundant life takes a lot of work. Just like winning the cup takes a lot of work. Just like taking the trophy takes a lot of work. But let me tell you something, it's worth it. So it's hard. Um, it's, it's something that requires other people. It requires the people of God in it at all times. And so that's what Journey, uh, the ministry I'm associated with, did for me. It was people just being really honest and vulnerable about what was going on with them and then just taking it to Jesus and saying, we don't know what to do about this, but we know who does, and let's talk to him about this. And that's what made all the difference for me. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. You know, earlier when you were sharing, and I won't, we don't have time to get into it, but I, I just wanted to highlight that an important part of your journey was this piece of identity, right? And, and last week we talked about uh, how Babylon uh, tries to rename you, right? And, and, and the importance of actually understanding who God names you to be. Um, and so just a connection even to last week that I wanted to highlight. Um, but we're talking about how to live with grace, this, this balance of grace and truth in a culture of compromise. There's, uh, there's people who claim to be Christians that are polarizing on both sides, uh, not just in this issue, but on, on most issues that Bam- Babylon would like to highlight to us. Uh, but you're someone, uh, Graham, that hasn't only lived this out, but you're actually uh, living the tension of grace and truth in ministry towards others, right? And, and you're involved in, in the ministry of journey. Uh, and for those of us that are trying to figure out how do we live with this proper tension of grace and truth, uh, and, and you meet with people all the time that are uh, being told, hey, just go along with Babylon, but they're in tension, and they're, they're wanting to um, figure out what it means to live as, an, as a son or daughter of God in, in the midst of that tension. Uh, and I listened to an interview you know, this past week. There's a number of interviews that you've done um, and a CBC interview that Graham did where, where they're trying to polarize you one way or another. It's like they're looking for the, uh, this crazy uh, religious Graham, and then you didn't give it to him. Um, and then they're looking for the ungracious Graham, uh, and you didn't give it to him. But you, you kind of just walk this balance of, of grace and truth. Uh, and at the end of the interview, they're like, huh, that's, that's how they responded to it. Huh, I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh, it's not, this wasn't the conversation I thought it was going to have. Uh, and I think you're someone that does that well. So can you tell us, you know, how do you go about leading other people and taking a stand in a world of compromise, but yet uh, you're incredibly gracious and understanding, uh, and, and people are disarmed. Uh, when, they're, when they come looking for a fight, they, look, they come in conversation with you, and they feel like they're disarmed. Uh, and we talked about how Jesus did that really well last week. So uh, share with us a little bit about how your approach and how you do that. So I think um, there's a couple things. Number one, I think Jesus says to me, listen, Graham, you're the kind of guy who thought his 
wife and family were a prison and a barrier to becoming who you really were. And actually, they were my gracious gift to you. So you don't really know what's going on. So let's just be aware that you really don't have it together. So, you know, let's, let's think about that and who, who it is you're actually pointing people toward. And I think the other thing is, kind of reaching back into the athletic analogy, God is for you. He's, he's for all people, and he's not just for me. I believe that God is for me, but I also believe he's for everyone. He wants them to enter into the abundant life that Jesus died to give them. He wants them to live that joy-filled, contented life. And that's not easy. And so it's, you know, you can't both win the cup and lay on the sofa. You can't uh, lie to people and have them trust you. You can't covet things and have peace of mind and contentment with what you have. These things don't go together. You cannot worship in Babylon and in Zion at the same time, not because it makes God angry, but because they're not the same place. They don't work together. And so I'm for you, but I'm going to tell you there's some stuff you're doing that isn't allowing you to enter into the abundant life. But I want, I want you to have that. I want you to enter into that. I want you to be united with Christ. Beautiful. Thanks, Graham. So last thing, um, you, you talked a little bit about journey, and you said, hey, can I plug something that's going on in journey? I said, hey, if you'll share your story with us, you can plug whatever you want. So here you go. So I talked a little bit about being at journey and, and entering into that safe place. And so I just want to extend the invitation to this community that we do a 17, 18-week discipleship course. And this is really what it is. It's a safe place where you can meet with people who have, all, who have, who have had and continue to deal with all kinds of chaos in their lives and yet have received the touch of the Lord, the healing touch of the Lord in their lives. And they're willing to walk with you through that. And so we actually run this program once a year and it happens that the program is starting next week, next Sunday evening. And so I'd like to extend the invitation to this community. If you're interested in joining us for this discipleship course, there's some contact information uh, up front. Um, there is a cost associated with it. I don't want you to be surprised about that. But if there's some kind of chaos going on in your life that you're like, I'm so ashamed of this, I can't share it with anyone, we're a safe place where you can start to unpack and process these things. And just, we practice listening prayer, so it, nobody's going to give you advice, no one's going to tell you how you sort through your stuff. We're just going to take it to Jesus and see what he has to say about it. And I, and I promise you it's good. It's good. Awesome. Let's give Graham a hand. Thank you, Graham. So uh, the, the band's going to come up, and we're going to end worshiping and elevating God uh, together. Uh, and I think there's three responses that we, uh, to, to Babylon that we see in the story uh, that in, in many ways we're going to practically do here as we worship uh, together. And we respond by saying, I will exalt God. Instead of self, I will exalt God. I will live my life praising and exalting God, not just my heart. And we were just talking about this, the sporting analogies um, that, that Graham was using. And, and have you ever noticed that there's more exalting and praising going on on a Saturday than a Sunday? That we, we live in a culture that exalts sports teams. I'm just as guilty as anybody. I, I jump all over my house um, when the Raptors lose. Uh, fortunately, that hasn't been happening a lot this year. Uh, <laughs> but I will exalt God above all else. And, and I know we're Canadian, but, but at, at some point we got to say, I, I care more about exalting God than I do about the Calgary Flames. I will exalt God. I, I will praise God. I, I will orient my life around God more than anything else. Here we see the Psalm 145. I'll exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Second thing, I will acknowledge God. I will live my life with acknowledgement that God is king and that he's extended grace to me. That everything I have in my life is because God has given it to me, that he's been gracious to me. You know, I joked a couple of weeks ago that, uh, of how bad of a student I am. I stand here as a, a C student, maybe an E. Uh, if there was such a thing as E, that would be me. 
But I'm standing here not because of me, not because of, because I'm so smart, but because God had a call on my life. And I get, to, I get to live that out. Not because of me, but because of God, because of God's grace on my life. I will acknowledge God. Live in thankfulness towards God. First Corinthians 4, you can read that later. In light of time, I'm going to move on to number three. I will humble myself. Babylon wants you to elevate yourself. That, that is the gospel of our culture. But the upside-down gospel of Jesus is, is actually you will find yourself when you lose yourself. John 3.30, John the Baptist says, I must decrease and Christ must increase. And here's the truth that humility is coming. Humility is coming for you. You can initiate it or life is going to initiate it for you. You can initiate or culture will initiate it. Every one of us will be humbled at some point in our lives. The invitation that Jesus brings is for you to initiate it. Humble yourself. Not because you have to, but because you choose to. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Standing strong in a pride-inflated culture begins face down. That in the culture of Babylon, we resist the temptation to elevate self, and we choose to humble ourselves and elevate Jesus. And that is how we move from insanity and chaos into the abundant life that Jesus has for every single one of us. I want to invite you to stand with me. And the band's going to lead us. And then the band will dismiss us. Uh, just a reminder that we have hearing God tonight. Uh, and starting point, uh, week one starts after the service. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the invitation to life. We thank you that you are for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Lord, we live in a culture that plays on our own insecurities, on temptations, and that, that just says, hey, if you want true life, then just go for it. But God, I pray that you would give us the eyes to see Babylon around us. And Lord, that that, that, that place does not lead to freedom, but it leads to imprisonment. And Lord, for those in this place this morning that have never bowed their knee to you, Lord, I pray that you would tug on their heartstrings this morning and say, stop bowing your knee to Babylon, bow your knee to me. For those who are experiencing chaos in their life, Jesus, I pray that they would hear your call back to sanity, back to abundant life, back to the full life that you want to give them. Lord, we don't choose chaos. We don't choose Babylon. We choose your kingdom. And you are king of that kingdom. Lord, would you increase that we may decrease so that we may live in the identity and the purpose for which you created us. In Jesus' name, amen.